when sediment leaves a field, <laughs> it's taking nutrients with it. It's taking carbon with it. It's basically taking soil productivity with it when it leaves. And so again, if we keep sediment in the fields, it benefits agricultural production in that field and benefits the farmer economically. Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. This is Chuck from Moses. This is the final of our three partnership episodes with the Rodale Institute. All three episodes have been fantastic conversations with really interesting, insightful, and experienced people. So be sure to check out the previous two episodes. On today's episode, I talk with Dr. Melinda Daniels of the Stroud Water Research Center and Dr. Kirsten Pearson of the Rodale Institute. They are collaborating on a fascinating study where they are farming 40 acres of sloped land using four treatments, organic till, organic no-till, conventional till, and conventional no-till. They are measuring essentially everything you'd want to know about it. Quantity and composition of the runoff, crop yields, emissions and energy use, chemical residues on crops and in the water and soil, stream water quality, or the presence of harmful microbes in the water, and the physical, chemical, and biological properties of the soil, including water filtration. Let's get to it. Would you like to introduce yourselves, maybe starting with Kirsten? Sure. I'm Dr. Kirsten Pearsons, and I'm a postdoc researcher at the Rodel Institute in Pennsylvania, and I am really primarily working on the watershed impact trial. And Melinda, could you introduce yourself? My name is Dr. Melinda Daniels. I am a lead scientist at the Stroud Water Research Center in Avondale, Pennsylvania. And I'm one of the lead scientists on the farm systems trial evaluation study that's collaborative between the Stroud Center and the Rodale Institute. Okay, so you both have studied water systems and, and now you're kind of intersecting more with agriculture. So that's really interesting. How did that switch happen for both of you? Or how did that how did that connection get drawn in? Yeah, for me, I studied environmental toxicology in undergrad out in California. And then from there, I got really interested in pesticides. So I switched to studying entomology out here in Pennsylvania. And there I really discovered how pesticides move in the soil and how field management practices can really affect how the pesticides move off the field. And then that's how I ended up at Rodale, kind of making this connection between farming practices, soil health and downstream water quality. Yeah, so for me, I've always been interested in human environment interactions, really. And I majored in natural resources and environmental sciences all through school until I got my PhD when I started to focus on river science in particular. And so most of my career uh, has been focused on river systems, but also watersheds. And several of my recent projects have really tried to address challenges associated with restoring river systems and restoring the hydrologic and, and water quality function of watersheds because the watershed determines everything that goes on in the river. And so this project with Rodale is really an outgrowth of a research program I've been developing looking at holistic watershed restoration. So we know that we can't take people out of the watershed. Farms make food we need to eat. And so we need to find solutions uh, so that we can have productive agriculture in our watersheds, but in a way that minimizes the damage to freshwater ecosystems. And so really that's the main motivation behind this whole project is how can we 
farm for food effectively and productively, but minimize the water quality and really flooding impacts that can result from agricultural land uses. Thanks for sharing. I find that often with people who didn't grow up in agriculture, practicality leads them to agriculture because it's the applied version of a lot of different kinds of science. That's why it's super important. So thank you both for being here. Do you want to give a little bit more of an explanation of what the watershed systems trial is and how it came to be and some of the main findings? Yeah. So the watershed systems trial is really our attempt to take the amazing long-term research that's been conducted at the Rodale Farm Systems Trial Plots, which are these smaller plots where they've farmed uniformly for decades and have been able to watch how the soil changes and how crop production responds to different types of farming techniques like conventional, regenerative, organic methods. But the only problem with that farm systems trial at the Rodale Institute is that it's just in one field and it's a really flat field. So a lot of farming, as we all know, happens on slopes. And there are entire watersheds where 90% of the land cover is in agriculture. So we wanted to, to upscale essentially the work that's been done at the Rodale farm systems trial plots to a watershed scale. And so we have this small watershed at the Stroud Preserve, where we have converted all of the fields from conventional practices to organic practices. And so really that's the focus of that watershed impact trial is can we measure over a number of years how the soils respond, how the fields respond, how the runoff, both in terms of the quantity of water, but also what's in the water when it's running off from those fields, how does that adjust through time? on a a very real world setting, on a slope in a watershed with a stream that drains it that we can also monitor. So basically the first time that I'm aware where anyone has taken an entire watershed and moved it from conventional practices to organic practices and monitored not only what's going on in the field, but what's going on in the stream that drains that watershed. That is super interesting. So do you have a baseline of data from all the previous years when it was managed conventionally? Yes. So we had conducted a previous research study in this watershed back in the 90s with some funding from National Science Foundation looking at an entirely different question. So we have a a very rich baseline data set from when it was actively farmed conventionally, including information on the farming practices that were being undertaken at the time in terms of fertilizer application rates, types of crops that were planted, et cetera. Kirsten, do you have anything to add to Melinda's description of the study? The only thing I want to add is that some of the farming practices that we're looking at are really focused on cover crops and reducing tillage, which are both hot topics in conventional and organic farming. And hopefully that the information we get from these studies we'll be able to share with not only organic farmers, but also conventional farmers that are interested in adopting some more of these more sustainable practices. Yeah, that's a good point, Kristen. So the project honestly is is huge, right? (laughs) So there's multiple dimensions to it. What I described earlier is, is what we call our watershed impact trial, where we've taken that whole watershed from conventional and put it into organic practices. But Right next door to that, on, on the other side of the watershed divide, are other big fields where we've done the same thing, but with conventional practices and conservation practices. So I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the Rodale Farm Systems Trial, small plots, but they have 
I think 16 different agricultural practice treatments in those plots that again have been consistently farmed the same way for decades. And what we've done is we've basically taken four of those. So conventional farming, which is your tillage, no cover crops, application of fertilizer, pesticide, and replicated that at one of our large scale fields on a slope. And we've also done the same for what we're calling conservation agricultural practices, which is no-till using cover crops, but still using herbicides and pesticides as needed. So it's sort of like a middle ground between true conventional agriculture and organic practices. And so we have that replicated also at field scale on a slope. And then in the watershed impact trial, we have full-on organic methods. So we've basically taken the small plot treatments from Rodale, picked a couple that represent the spectrum of agriculture, and put them on a, a sloped full field scale at the Strata Preserve. Okay, and then so you're looking at both movement of sediment and also chemical levels from the different treatments in the water? Yeah, so the main thing that we're looking at with the soil is these different measures of soil health, which has been a really hot topic in the last few years. And it's been something that Rodale has been interested in for decades now. So we're measuring different qualities of soil health that we would expect would influence the quality and the quantity of water that's either running off the fields or percolating down through the soil. So we're looking at things that are related to the physical properties of the soil, so how compacted it is and how quickly water infiltrates through the water. And then we're also looking at chemical properties. So what are the nutrients that are in the soil? If you're applying conventional synthetic fertilizers, you're gonna have very different um, nutrients and at different rates and at different times than you would in an organic system. And that's gonna affect what can possibly run off of the fields into a waterway. And then what we're most excited about, I think on the railroad side is the biological properties of the soil. So looking at soil carbon and uh, looking at active carbon. So this is really kind of a measure of how excited and active the microbial community is in these fields. And that's going to really influence how much organic matter we build in the soil, which will then affect how much water can be held in the soil, how healthy the whole system is, how nutrients are turning over. So it's all really connected to everything from carbon sequestration to water quality to producing healthy food everything is kind of revolving around that soil health question. Yeah, and I would add that we also are measuring the microbial community composition in the soils. Um, that, that's sort of the underlying hypothesis for a lot of this is that the ag practices strongly influence the microbial community, which really strongly influence soil structure and water holding capacity and, and also the ability and the rate of nutrient transformation so that they're plant available. So microbial sampling in the soil is a big part of the project as well. The two basic things for farmers to look at if they're trying to protect the watersheds around them, is basically building the soil structure and then also maybe some physical barriers between their fields and water. So like grass, waterways, riparian zones, things like that. Yeah, those buffers are very important, but they're not explicitly a part of this study. That The idea here is we already know what grass buffers and forested buffers can do in terms of nutrient removal and sediment removal and runoff, and they're workhorses in terms of pulling out a significant fraction of that pollutant load when it leaves the field. But now we've moved even further back up the hill slope, and we're interested in the field itself. And there's very strong evidence that agricultural practices can help 
keep nutrients in the field where they're not pollutants and where they actually benefit the farmer economically, because if they're not losing nutrients out of the field, they have to apply less fertilizer, right? So it's an economic savings on the ag equation side of things. And the same with the sediment. The less sediment that leaves the field in the first place, the less the buffer has to absorb. And when sediment leaves the field, <laughs> it's taking nutrients with it. It's taking carbon with it. It's basically taking soil productivity with it when it leaves. And so again, if we keep sediment in the fields, it benefits agricultural production in that field and benefits the farmer economically. Okay. So the things running through my mind is the difference between chemical no-till systems and more typical organic systems that use a lot of tillage. So Mm -hmm. what are the big differences between what results you see from a chemical no-till system that maybe has cover crops that they terminate with herbicide versus an organic system where they would terminate cover crops using tillage? That's really the central question that I'm interested in because on the one hand, organic agriculture we know is quote unquote better for the environment because it has lower chemical inputs, but it does depend on tillage in a lot of cases. And so we actually have In our experiment, a tillage-based organic system and a no-till-based organic system. And so within that organic watershed, we're also looking at that question of how much tillage influences, for example, sediment loss out of the field. Uh, So one of the primary questions we're asking is, what is the net water quality impact of these different methods? Because one... Organic, for example, may really improve water quality from a pesticide herbicide contaminant perspective, but potentially it may degrade water quality in terms of increased sediment erosion, right? And conversely, no-till chemical conservation ag may really reduce sediment loss and improve water quality from a sediment perspective, yet it increases pollution from a chemical perspective. And so that's why we're looking at that spectrum of the agricultural method choices, because we do want to be able to evaluate and say, look, if a whole watershed converted to organic agriculture, this is what you can expect. And we don't have answers yet, though. That's why we're doing this on a slope, because you cannot ask that question at the, the Rodale Farm System trial because the field is so flat. So it's difficult to generate runoff and really be able to assess the potential for erosion of sediment in particular. So that's why we've done it on a hill slope. And so we've been consistently farming our treatments for four years and we are sampling, but really it's not going to be until year six when we can conclusively say, this is the way things are going. This is what we can expect in terms of water quality um, produced by these different treatments. But I will say we can make some pretty... um, good guesses based on the flat FST plots, particularly with respect to the hydrology. We have measured infiltration, so how rapidly water soaks into the soil at the FST long-term plots. And the organic systems, both the no-till and the till organic systems, dramatically improve the soil's ability to infiltrate water. And that has very significant implications and likely very significant water quality implications on a hill slope. So if you infiltrate more water, you have less runoff. So that means less nutrients and soil leaving the field, without a doubt. And so that's what I'm anticipating that we will see in our experiment on the slope in the watershed impact trial. I'm mostly excited about the reduced tillage and the organic systems, because I think that that's 
a great way to get the benefits of the organic in terms of reducing pesticide use and synthetic fertilizers. But you, you don't have the disadvantages as much from all of that tillage because you're reducing the number of times that you're tilling. And if you're strategic on when you're tilling, you may be really reducing the amount of sediment that could potentially run off those fields. So I think trying to figure out the balance between managing weeds and incorporating nutrient sources like manure, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing that we find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up manure because if you talk to NRCS agents, some of them are really supportive of organic and some of them are really skeptical of organic because they worry about tillage and they worry about phosphorus from manure. Do you want to talk about the difference? Like if pound per pound of nitrogen applied, say of cow manure or hog manure fertilizer versus urea or something, what is the difference between how that might run off and how that might infiltrate and how phosphorus plays into that and how do phosphorus and nitrogen move differently in the soil? That's a lot of, I asked you a lot of questions all at once. another dissertation person right there. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the biggest piece is if you have a really active and alive soil, so if you have high microbial activity, you have living cover all year round because you're using cover crops or diverse crop rotations, whether you're applying manure or a synthetic fertilizer, you're going to have a better chance of keeping that nutrients in the system and you're going to have less runoff. The, the tricky thing with nitrogen is that you're having to balance nitrogen running off in the water and also nitrogen denitrifying and ending up in the environment as greenhouse gases. So sometimes with manure, maybe applied at a certain time or the soil just isn't active in the right way, you're going to end up with a lot more off-gassing and more greenhouse gas production. Whereas if you had used a synthetic nitrogen source, maybe you would have had more runoff. So it's, it's trying to balance these different things. And I think just really focusing on improving that soil health and that soil activity, you're probably going to help balance the system no matter what nitrogen source you're using. Do you want to talk a bit about best practices for applying manure and how you might mitigate the risks involved with applying manure? There's no easy answer to all of this, particularly from the farmer's perspective, because on the one hand, it's very tempting to go out and apply manure when the ground's frozen, for example, because you're not going to produce compaction in your field. That's also the most dangerous time to apply manure from a water quality perspective, because if you get a rain on frozen ground event, a lot of it is going to wash right off (laughs) and you get these. And that's pretty much guaranteed in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't apply it in midsummer when the soil is most alive and most able to uptake, right? You've got to figure out how to get that manure in there in the the farming calendar um, that makes sense. And there, there isn't an easy solution. What I will say is I'm hopeful that part of this shift and, and the scientific evaluation of these different systems can help inform farming systems that become less dependent on nutrient additions, exogenous nutrient additions like manure, like urea, and that industry develops alternative ways of dealing with manure waste. Because right now, manure is both a resource an input, but it's also a waste product that particularly dairy farmers or any kind of CAFO operator that they need to get rid of. And applying it to the land is really the traditional way of doing that. 
And I don't know, again, this is totally not my area, but I know there's a lot of research going on in this avenue, like how to convert manure into alternative products that can be applied a little more easily and with less impact on the environment. Yeah. Anecdotally, our neighbor here at the Riddell Institute, he's a dairy farmer and he grows corn on some acreage every year. And he applies manure every single year because he has it and he needs to get rid of it. One thing with the farming systems trial is we're trying to use manure on kind of a rotational schedule with our crops. So we're applying manure before we plant corn for silage and before we plant oats in a hope that because we're planting oats so early in the year, they could be able to start pulling up that nutrients quickly. And then with the corn, obviously it's very nitrogen hungry. So it's going to be able to pull up that nutrients as well. Whereas we're not applying manure when we're planting things like wheat and soybeans and hay. So possibly one of the management strategies you could use is maybe not applying manure every year and being strategic on when and where you're applying that manure. Is there a significant difference between composted manure versus raw manure, either in solid or liquid form? Because a lot of times it's bed pack manure that dairy farmers might be applying. And then in other instances, it's liquid manure that they're applying. Yeah, I know we're applying composted manure in the farming systems trial and also at the watershed impact trial. I have colleagues that have worked with the kind of uncomposted bedding manure, but I haven't done anything comparing the two. And I, I imagine like the nutrient profile is going to change the enrichment of the manure I would expect would happen as you're composting. Because with the composting process, the microbes are going to be burning off some of the extra carbon and you're going to probably have more available nitrogen and phosphorus right off the bat. So again, if you're applying that to something like corn that could start picking it up pretty quickly, maybe that would not be a problem. But if you're applying that to something that needs something more slow release, maybe not using compost manure. Yeah. And like you said, all this stuff has to fit into when a farmer is making a management decision about these things, it's fitting into their labor schedule, like how much time they have to do all these things. It's it's fitting into their crop rotation. What windows of time are they actually able to get out into the fields and apply it? And so, yeah, there's so many practical considerations to take into account, but hopefully they're able to find ways to do it without also putting a lot of nitrogen into the waterways near them. So do you want to talk a bit about phosphorus then and how phosphorus moves? So Phosphorus is one of the nutrients that binds to sediment particles. And so mostly phosphorus moves with the sediment, the soil, essentially. And it particularly gloms on to clay and silt particles that have the right sort of electrostatic receptors and less so to sand particles in a soil. It really is dependent on how many clay and silt particles is leaving your field in terms of where the phosphorus is going to go. And so the soil itself influences how much phosphorus you can expect to lose off of the field, as well as, of course, the application rate. Again, I'm not a, a chemical nutrient expert, but I, I do know that phosphorus, you know, loading is a concern and farmers do struggle with sort of hot spots where phosphorus really accumulates in their fields and that it's associated with fine particle accumulation and movement of those fine soil particles as well. Yeah. So the soil type and soil quality affects both of those things in really important ways. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. Okay. I don't believe we have a good handle yet on how different ag practices like organic practices can influence that. Uh, that that's something we're also measuring as part of our study and we'll, we'll see what we can learn from it. 
One of our big objectives of taking the flat farm system trial model and applying it to a hill slope full field scale is to try to really make conditions as realistic as possible. And along with the slope of the field and the setting also comes the weather driver of water quality events, erosion events. And so what we're doing is we simulate rainfall on these fields so that we have a very uniform kind of treatment, a uniform rainfall event that happens, and we measure that directly and, and in very great detail. So we make it rain for you know 45 minutes and we measure the runoff that comes off of that plot every minute. And so we're able to really understand how the field behaves and how that behavior differs across the agricultural treatments. And that really will help us relate the soil conditions in the field and how they respond to weather events to produce the, the runoff that eventually ends up impacting water quality in the stream. That's going to be really interesting to see the results of that for sure. That's <laughs> overall such a unique opportunity to be able to study management on an entire watershed. It's, it's just really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is very unusual to have that ability. There's one other piece of the project too that's probably really important for your listener audience is that, you know, we're all environmental soil scientists, water scientists, but we are also very, very aware that fundamentally these practices influence farmers and their bottom line, their economy on their farm. And so along with all of the environmental and soil health and water quality parameters, we also measure in gory detail all of the costs and benefits associated with these practices and these test fields. So we know how much inputs were put in, what they cost, and we know in great detail what crop came off and what market price it received. And so we're doing an economic analysis along with the environmental analysis because none of this will matter if it's not economically practical for farmers to do, right? So we're very aware of that and take that very seriously. We have a wonderful farmer partner who is a major farmer in our county where we're located and a top producer in the county who's very serious about his job. So it's funny when you you think about farmers making these difficult economic and management decisions, because like in Minnesota a few years ago, the governor passed something requiring farmers to have a 50 foot buffer around any public waterway. And there was pretty serious resistance from like the Corn Growers Association and things like that. But it, to me, I didn't make this up, but like, shouldn't farmers have their own version of the Hippocratic Oath where it's first do no harm? You shouldn't have the right to destroy water for everyone downstream. Like that should be the first consideration and not to have been able to grandfather in these practices. You know, stepping back from my role as scientist now and getting back to my management roots, it's terribly frustrating to see programs like the Conservation Reserve Program that have really languished in the last several decades. That program was started in response to the Dust Bowl and the agricultural devastation this country went through. And the Soil Conservation Service has created the CRP program to protect the 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 commons, the, the greater good of having a productive farmland in our country. And, and that has been applied to things like wildlife habitat. Farmers are compensated to put farmland into grassland for birds. And there's no reason it cannot also be applied to water quality. Absolutely. But the farmers should be compensated, right? This is their land. And 
a hundred foot buffer, which is absolutely the most effective thing to do around a stream or any other public water body that will protect the water quality, nevertheless does take acres out of production on their farm. And what's frustrating from you know, my perspective as both a scientist and a sort of management person is that connection hasn't been made at the federal government, hasn't been supported. And if we were to reinvigorate the CRP program, Conservation Reserve Program, to include water quality as an objective and fairly compensate farmers for that acreage, then the issue goes away. They're getting um, the money they ordinarily would have gotten from growing you know, corn, soybean rotation, and we're getting clean water and less erosion. But unfortunately, the political will has not been there to do that. And it's terribly frustrating from my perspective. Yeah, alternatively, it's just thinking about land use and (laughs) how many acres are in corn and soy in the first place where most of it isn't food and it's largely policy-based in the first place. So there's these incentives to grow as much corn and soy as you can because you'll get a price for it. And so people will grow it in places where they should never have been growing it in the first place. (laughs) So it's like the push and the pull are both there for people to grow corn right up to a waterway. But are either of you familiar with the driftless region of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa? So that's, yeah. So it's a, it's a beautiful place. Probably a lot of our listeners live there. So it's basically the part of the Midwest where the glaciers didn't flatten everything. It's really hilly and there's lots of streams and ridges and stuff like that. But basically leading up to the Dust Bowl, the farmers there were tilling a lot and all the water was running off. And what became the NRCS, hot planting along contours. So even today, if you drive through the driftless, even conventional farmers, you'll see a strip of hay, a strip of corn, a strip of soy, a strip of hay along the contour going all the way up. And their water quality is fantastic. There's so many trout in those streams. So it's really interesting to see a place where these practices have been in place for generations and the positive impact that it's had on the water there. And now it's a destination for tourists to go fly fishing. So anyway, there's so many benefits of taking on these practices that aren't new, not just farmers themselves, but for everyone. So I think the market forces are really going to be the the big driving exogenous factor in this situation. The farmer we work with here in Chester County, there's an incredible demand for organic corn from buyers like Whole Foods, right? Because the consumer demand is there for the organic cereals and grains. And so he's very aware that, that this is the future. And so the best thing to do is to figure out how to do it right so that it's economically viable and achieves the consumer demand for the organic product and has the least impact on the environment in the process of converting from conventional organic practices. That consumer side of things also related to the Rodal Institute's role on this project. We have a wonderful outreach and communications team that is working to take the information that we're learning from these projects and also just kind of Rodale's history to teach the public and to teach children how farming practices and the food you eat is related to water quality and the water you drink. So trying to get the public more interested and invested in organic agriculture and some of these farming practices that will improve water quality. Yeah, I've I've been thinking a lot lately about the consumer's role in all of this and 
it has an, its inherent limits to it where currently I think market share is like 5% for organic food products. A lot of that is imported. So we, I think there's like 1% of the land mass in the U.S. is organic. A lot of people just can't afford it. And so I feel like people can feel like they're being shamed if it's putting too much ethical pressure on the food that they buy when it's really about systems. And then the second part is is that it, it kind of assumes that, I guess, I guess the big assumption at the base of our entire economy is that consumers are rational. Like if they're educated, they'll make rational decisions. But I don't think that's always true. I, I know they have a role, but I'm a little bit more skeptical of the traditional farm to table messaging about it, where it's just like, if people knew where their food came from, they wouldn't buy feedlot beef anymore or something like that. When I think it's it's a much more complex problem, but you can still move the needle with that on those certain people. <laughs> so we already talked about compensating farmers for things like riparian zones. And I know this is ne neither of your particular expertise is the policy side of things, but what are some of the systemic changes that might be able to happen in order to incentivize good practices and yeah. discourage people from negative practices? Well, this is another great question. So let's just talk about pollution permitting for a second. And since we're talking about fresh water, pollution typically in the United States is regulated using TMDLs, total maximum daily loads that are set for particular river systems. And state environment agencies and US EPA have worked really hard over the last several decades to address point sources of pollution into our waterways. So factory pipes that come out of production facilities and municipal sewer outfalls, those kinds of point sources. It's to the point now where in places like the Chesapeake Bay watershed, all the point sources are, have been addressed, yet there's still a significant nutrient pollution problem. And so what's on the horizon is moving to the non-point sources because that's all that's left. And so again, in counties within the Chesapeake where agriculture dominates, the writing really is on the wall already that, you know, not that the feds are coming for you, but that if the nutrient pollution problem is going to be addressed, it's going to have to take individual landowners acting on their private property in a diffuse way to finally address that nutrient pollution problem. And primarily we're talking about agriculture. And so I foresee very soon, not regulatory moves, but incentive programs that will really strongly try to target in-field practices. So manure spreading, incentivizing programs that, for example, buy manure from farmers to take to biochar production facilities instead of having the farmer have to dispose of that on their own fields as a waste product. Hopefully something like the CRP situation we were talking about where you incentivize riparian buffers, but then also incentives for converting practices to more conservation-based agricultural practices and organic practices. And I would not at all be surprised to begin to see something like agricultural credits developed just like we have carbon credits now that a farmer can be compensated for farming a particular way. I would not be shocked at all to see that develop in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. That's interesting. Kirsten, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think without policy, the decisions that farmers are making that benefit them, that also happen to benefit water quality, I think are really going to be things that are going to change the direction in terms of water pollution. So if a grower decides that 
hey, these cover crops that I've been planting are great because they're reducing my pest pressure, they're keeping weeds down, they're adding carbon into my system, which helps hold water and nutrients. Now my corn is doing better. Maybe they're not even thinking about the downstream watershed, or maybe they aren't concerned about that. And they're making these management decisions based on the benefits they're seeing on their farm. So my hope would be that a lot of these conservation practices are going to benefit the growers themselves. So they want to adapt them because it helps their bottom line, but then the end also kind of helps that environmental issue. Yeah. I mean, that's another really important point that Kirsten just made is there are indications that some of these changes that we are observing in the hydrologic behavior of the soil and the microbial community composition of the soil really are very valuable to the farmer from a resiliency standpoint. So for example, if in the process of switching ag practices, you increase the water holding capacity of the soil dramatically, not only are you not producing runoff, but you're basically producing drought resistance in your own soil. So your corn crop growing out in somewhere like Kansas, a semi-arid environment, if you have a more resilient soil that can withstand drought, better than with conventional practices, your yield is going to be dramatically increased that growing season. And there's still a ton of the United States that's rain-dependent agriculture. We're not irrigating, right? So that kind of potential is seemingly very real and potentially incredibly valuable to farmers. Yeah, one of our organic specialists is a dairy farmer in northern Wisconsin, and he does a lot of grazing education. And one thing that he's found is that if he says climate change in a meeting of farmers in northern Wisconsin, the conversation shuts down and it just devolves into conspiracy theories. But if he talks about these practices in terms of the resilience that it'll build for them to extremes of weather being super wet or super dry all in the same season, If you build soil organic matter and you keep your soil in place and you do cover crops and you have continuous living cover and you integrate animals into the landscape, you will be more resilient to these things (laughs) that you can't deny have happened to you all these years where things are super unpredictable. So yeah, my instinct is to just be like, it's just, it's climate change. It's a conspiracy theory to think it's not climate change, <laughs> but that's like super unhelpful actually. Yeah. <laughs> that attitude, that. learning how to talk to the, the audience about it is something that I am still doing a lot. of. <laughs> yeah. I was a part of a big project in the Great Plains looking at climate and, and sort of the very rigid culture literally human culture in in that part of the world and how that translates into being incredibly resistant to incentive programs or advice from extension agents, anything that's mapped of climate change. And what we found is that these the same constituents are intensely aware of climate variability and the dangers it presents to their operations. So you could talk about climate variation, you could talk about droughts and floods and the extremes that they've all lived through. But the minute it's tied to climate change, the brick wall comes down and that's the end of it. Yeah. So <laughs> my, my advice is don't talk about climate change, talk about climate variation and drought, wet, dry and wet cycles that are uh, a normal part of 
particularly the Midwest and Great Plains regions of the United States, much less so out here in the East, but nevertheless, and talk about extreme events and just don't try to make that connection to climate change because it just, it shuts down the conversation immediately. Yeah, just talk about the drought of 2012 and the floods of 2017 rather than that's what right. they view to be a partisan political issue. So That's right, that's right. Unfortunately, yeah. like as we see with the pandemic, the two cannot be dissociated once that disinformation gets out there. And that's a whole project that's going to take generations, I think, to overcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten and Melinda, for the work you're doing and also for taking the time to share with me and our listeners. I really appreciate it a lot. No problem. Happy to help. Yeah, hopefully in three years, we can uh, have some exciting results to share. Thanks to the staff at the Rodale Institute for putting this together and to Dr. Melinda Daniels and Dr. Kirsten Pearson for the conversation. And thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and to tell a farmer friend about the show. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. Call the Organic Answer Line to ask a specialist about organic farming and certification at 888-90-MOSES or visit mosesorganic.org ask. All of our farmer specialists can talk to you about everything organic farming related, including grain, vegetables, fruit, all kinds of livestock, beekeeping, organic certification, food safety, marketing, urban farming, land access, and more. These services are available in English, Hmong, Spanish, Swahili, and Somali. If you have any questions about today's episode or have ideas for future episodes, please contact me at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. Thanks again for listening.